Good morning and welcome to our program, Our American Heritage. I am the host, Art Hunter, and it is our desire at American Heritage to explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. Understanding the history of this great nation is paramount in understanding our greatness. And we're pleased to welcome back today as a very special guest, Michael Harris. Michael, welcome back to the program and thank you for coming again. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Arch. Oh, and listeners, Michael's book on Brandywine and Germantown are the Bibles for both of those battles, and I can't recommend them highly enough to purchase them and read them. Michael is a wonderful historian, a greatly in-depth historian. Uh, he's got a great passion for American history and reading about the revolution. In our first show, Michael shared with us about the Battle of Brandywine uh, leading up to it and the, right after Brandywine, the results of what was going on. So, Michael, if you would like to pick it up there, if you would, please. You were mentioning about the Battle of the Clouds, and and that's pretty much where we left off at that Okay. Point. Yeah, so uh, let's kind of explain a little bit how those armies got from the Battle of the Clouds that I talked about at the end of the last session up to why Germantown, so to speak, right? So after the Battle of the Clouds, if you'll recall, there was an uh, ammunition situation. The wind swept the rain there, destroyed ammunition on both sides. So Washington had to get to a new supply of ammunition. And so he moved his army well to the northwest to get nearer to the town of Reading, Pennsylvania, which was a supply depot for him. So he peels way off out of the way of Philadelphia and the British Army. But he did leave one division behind under Anthony Wayne to sort of keep an eye on the British. Now, the British want to get across the Schuylkill River, but that, that heavy tropical rainstorm put the Schuylkill River above flood stage. So there was no crossing the river until the water levels dropped in the area. So the British had to wait. But even as that water level dropped, they started to find out from loyalists in the area that there was an American force somewhere in their rear, that, that force under Anthony Wayne. And they were hesitant to maneuver into crossing the Schuylkill until they eliminated that threat from their rear. And so on the night of September 20th, they basically forced some guides in the area to help them find Wayne's camp. And they do find it around midnight that night, and they attack Anthony Wayne's camp in something that becomes known as the Battle of Paoli or the Paoli Massacre. And Wayne's division is pretty beat up in, in that affair. But once they eliminate that threat from their rear, they're able to maneuver up into actually where the Valley Forge Park is today to prepare crossing the Schuylkill. Now, Washington, by this point, has resupplied himself. He has moved his army north of the Schuylkill in the blocking positions at the various fords along the Schuylkill River. And so Howe needs to get Washington out of the way somehow. So he starts to march west like he's going to head towards Reading. And so Washington has to make a decision. What's more important, his supply depots or the city of Philadelphia? Well, a wise military commander will always pick his supply depot over a militarily meaningless city. Politically meaningful, militarily meaningless. So he abandons protecting Philadelphia and, and peels away from those various fords to start the shift of the West to um, not allow Howe to get into Reading. Howe had no intention of going that far inland, and so once his own scouts informed him that Washington was peeling away, he stopped marching west, turned around, marched back into the Valley Forge area, and on the night of the 23rd, they start crossing the Schuylkill River and moving uh, into what's today modern Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and camping in where roughly where modern Norristown is today that evening. But on the 25th, they march closer to Philadelphia and occupy the village of Germantown. That's how the British end up there. 
And then on the morning of the 26th of September, they send a column under Charles Cornwallis to march down the road to officially occupy the city of Philadelphia, beginning the nine-month British occupation of the city of Philadelphia. Now, Washington's going to have to do something. So he starts slowly inching his army closer to those British camps so that by October 2nd, they are positioned, oh, about eight miles away from Germantown around uh, where the Peter Wentz farm was or is. And they have to come up with a plan. Now, Washington's spies have informed him that uh, Howell's army that's camped at Germantown is not the same force that attacked him at Brandywine. Uh, Howell has been forced to, to dispatch troops to Wilmington, to Chester, and then obviously to Philadelphia. So the army that he has camped with him at Germantown is a shadow of the force he had taken in the Battle of Brandywine because of all those detachments. Whereas Washington, yes, he has suffered casualties, but he's also received reinforcements. So his army is not much different in size than it was at Brandywine, so he outnumbers fairly significantly the British force at Germantown. And so he comes up with this plan that, you know, how we're going to attack Germantown. And it's a ambitious plan, to say the least. He's going to send his army down five different roads uh, to march all night, October 3rd into the 4th, um, to somehow arrive at five different points around Germantown and attack simultaneously. It's a pretty bold thing in an area in an era with no cell phones and no GPS and, you know, all those modern things that we use now. They're going to attempt to do that. And the shocking thing is they do pull that off. By dawn of October 4th, every column got to where it was supposed to be, maybe within 15 minutes of each other. So they actually pulled that off, and then they launched this surprise attack on the British camp at Germantown. And it's initially very successful. They crushed the whole right wing of the British camp. They were driving deep into Germantown, and things were going very, very well. And then a series of bad decisions at the highest levels of the army changed all that. So in the midst of driving the British back, two British companies, maybe 50 guys, um, barricaded themselves inside of a stone house called Cliveden, which, uh, as the battle progressed, ended up behind the American lines. And so there was a heated argument, uh, mainly between Henry Knox and Timothy Pickering, of what to do about this house. And Knox argued you couldn't uh, continue the battle without eliminating that threat to their rear. And Pickering argued that you need to keep pushing because the battle's not over. And Knox wins out. And so then fighting is going to swirl around this house at Cliveden. And the units that had pushed past the house hear all this commotion to their rear, and you start to get uh, units peeling back from the front line, lines that had driven beyond Cliveden because they hear all the shooting behind them, and they start to move backwards. And you get all these friendly fire incidents and things going on. But more importantly, the British are no longer being pressed. So they're able to regroup and reform their lines and counterattack. And so all that the, the decisions made and the attacks on Cliveden allowed the British to regroup and then push the Americans back out of Germantown and retake all their lost grounds and campsites, etc. So that's sort of a, a basic synopsis of what, of what happens at Germantown. But I'm sure you've got some follow-up questions about that, Arch. Yeah, Michael, why did British believe that taking Philadelphia would no doubt end the, the... It's just uh, a European mindset. 
that if you do that in Europe, your your enemy will sue for peace, and you could negotiate a peace treaty. Um, that's all it is. It's a European mindset. It just doesn't work here. North America had not developed like Europe. I mean, North America was a very young area compared to in in the grand scheme of world history. So you don't have to develop road networks. You don't have to develop cities and and um, industry and all that other stuff that you would have in Europe. So it wasn't that big a deal if they caught captured Philadelphia. The Congress just moved somewhere else and, and continued to hold meetings. In this case, they went to York uh, uh, in the Pennsylvania backcountry. So, but again, in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really affect the American war effort like you would see happening, say, by the capture of Paris, as an example, um, or London, if, if you know, something like that would happen. It was just a European mindset, and it didn't work. And before Powell eventually goes into Philadelphia himself in Washington, we know eventually ends up in Valley Forge, did Howe try to goad Washington into another battle to crush his army before they both went into winter containment? Yeah, now Howe will personally move into Philadelphia, trying to remember, about two weeks after the Battle of Germantown. I don't remember the exact date off the top of my head, but he will eventually go down there and take housing in the city. And then before officially declaring winter quarters, he will move out again on the night of December 4th into the 5th. Washington at this point has got the army camped on a series of hills in the White Marsh area. Very strong position. I'm not entirely clear if Hal realized how strong the position was until he went out there and saw it. But he marches out there hoping to goad Washington into a fight. And there is going to be some skirmishing and, and minor engagements, but it does not draw the entire American army in. Um, and it goes on for four days, the 5th through the 8th, but it never uh, escalates into a full-scale combat. And Hal pretty much gives up and marches back on the night of the 8th back into Philadelphia. And that's the last major action of the Philadelphia campaign before Washington goes to Valley Forge and, and Hal officially declares winter quarters. We are somewhat familiar with Washington's challenges at Valley Forge. What were General Hal's challenges occupying Philadelphia for the winter? Um, it, it gets better as the winter goes on. His initial problem was a lack of food. So when he first occupied the city, so late September, really up through, you could argue, late November, he has a logistics problem. Because even though he has the city, he doesn't control the river. And uh, the Americans had a couple forts below Philadelphia that they had put some troops in. And then they had these obstructions that they sunk in the river to prevent the British Navy from uh, docking in Philadelphia and bringing much-needed food and supplies into the city, not just for the army, but for the civilians as well. And so the army is, is starting to starve by early November. It's a problem. And so he has to wage uh, a series of, of sieges and assaults on these river fortifications to break the, the American stronghold on, on the river. Um, had the Americans held out uh, long enough for the, the Delaware River to freeze over, Washington may have been able to starve the British out like he did at Boston. Um, so initially, it's a huge problem for Howe. Now, as the as once he gets control of the river by the uh, by late November, um, that's less of an issue. And so as the the months progress up through April and May and all, the British aren't nearly as in bad shape as the Americans out of Valley Forge in terms of food and supplies. Does that answer your question, Arch? Sure. It did. Thank you. It, it, 
with Washington's army that's now been in tatters and has really no supplies, why did not General Howe ever come out of Philadelphia during the winter and attack Continental Army? Oh, that's a good question. It, it basically boils down to it's hard to campaign in the winter months. Um, it's not uncommon in the 18th century and really right through most of the 19th century it's logistically difficult to maneuver an army on winter roads where you're relying on um, muddy, frozen roads to move supplies. Um, it's just It just wasn't done. Um, it's not that Hal did anything unusual or out of the ordinary. Um, it, people just didn't try to do things. The, the same thing happened um, in 76, 77 when that's why the attack on Trenton and Princeton is so shocking because – the British just assumed the Americans were done. They weren't going to try to attack that late in the campaign season. And then once Washington gets into Morristown, Hal doesn't make any effort to go attack him after that. And it's the same thing at Valley Forge. It's just it's winter, it's winter season, and we're not going to fight. I mean, it's 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 as simple as it's a weather issue. And I, I'm curious, Michael, what are what are the strengths and weaknesses of General Hal as a general, as a leader? And then the follow-up question is the strength and weaknesses of General Washington. Well, Hal's issue is um, he's very brilliant tactically on a battlefield. He knows how to win a battle. Strategically is where you start to run into some problems with Hal. I mean, his decision to come to Philadelphia was a, a strategic mistake. But the other thing is he is also tasked as a peace commissioner to negotiate peace with the Americans. and. So I think a lot of times after he wins a battlefield victory, he purposely doesn't follow up that victory in an immediate way because he doesn't want to destroy them. Because if you're also tasked as a peace commissioner, you need um, – ultimately, England wants the Americans back into the fold. They're, they're assuming they're going to win this war, and they're going to need to, to conduct trade relations with the American colonists again. So he doesn't want to completely humiliate and defeat them in the hopes that, you know, eventually the war is going to be won and we need to have a relationship with these people. So that's what's going on with Hal. Now, Washington is brilliant. He's sort of the opposite. He's terribly, he's terrible tactically. You know, Washington wins very few battles. I mean, other than Trenton and Princeton, he really doesn't win anywhere else. I mean, you could argue he won at Yorktown, but that doesn't happen without the French. So he's very, very bad tactically on a battlefield. Um, but where Washington is brilliant is organizationally, inspirationally, he never let that army fall apart. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff that that Continental Army went through, and Washington never let it fall apart and collapse. That, so, you know, there's a, there's a bit of brilliance there for Washington. Um, it's why he's going to make a great president later on. But he's also pretty smart strategically. I mean, the idea of keeping his army intact and maneuvering it in a way that he doesn't allow Hal to destroy it, and then looking for the moments to strike. Now, I know Germantown's a loss, but that was a moment to strike. He had an opportunity there. It just didn't play out as he had hoped. I mean, the idea of trying to starve the, the British out of, of Philadelphia, that's strategically brilliant. It doesn't play out like he hoped, but it was it was a smart move to try to do that without destroying your army in a frontal assault. So. They're almost opposites in terms of tactics and strategics. And when Washington, Michael, gets to Valley Forge, why at that point does his army 
Why didn't they have the clothing and, and supplies and ammunition and they, they suffered there? Uh, it's just, it's, Congress doesn't have money. Um, they, the, the North America doesn't have the, oh, I mean, a big piece of its money. You know, Congress doesn't have funds to go get all the stuff they need. But then there's also, you know, it's the nature of North America in the 18th century. It wasn't industriously developed. You know, there weren't all these clothing factories. There wasn't gun factories all over the place. There wasn't, there, you know, that stuff just, I mean, they were kind of backwoods operations. Like you have, like a village might have a gunsmith, but, you know, you don't have factories doing these things. And so they're they're heavily dependent on capturing things in battle, capturing British supplies, capturing supply ships off the coast that are trying to get to the British. I mean, there's accounts of American regiments wearing captured British uniforms because that's what they have. But then, and then that's another reason why the French alliance is such a big deal, because that brings in a source of supply for the Americans. The French are going to start supplying them with the things they need. Um, so it's just, it's, it's A, funds, and B, North America just wasn't developed like it will be in the 19th century. And we know, Michael, Washington throughout the rest of the revolution, his presidency, what is Hal's future after he takes Philadelphia? What happens to uh, Hal actually resigned not long after the Battle of Germantown. Um, now, he won't officially get the acceptance of that resignation and go home until the spring of 1778. He leaves, I want to say early June, around the same time that Henry Clinton comes and takes command um, and begins evacuating Philadelphia and, and moving across New Jersey, which ultimately results in the Battle of Monmouth. But Hal goes home, I want to say it's like early June of 78. When he does get home, there's an a inquiry into his decisions uh, by Parliament, where he will, I, I, I think I mentioned in the previous uh, one of these we did, he has to testify before Parliament about his, his questions directly about the decisions he made at various points in his two years of command, including several of the subordinate officers that happened to be home on leave or also questioned as part of that inquiry. Uh, but after that, he ends up, man, off the top of my head, he ends up in sort of different, uh, he's still technically an officer in the Army. He ends up just holding various uh, commands in the home islands. He, I don't think he ever sees combat again after 77 but I'd have to go consult my notes to double-check that. But uh, he basically ends up in, a, in backwater positions after that. And you've mentioned the success that the Continental Army had in the Revolution with uh, the French and the French Alliance. How important were the Hessens when they rented to come here to help the British? And, and what were the problems or successes that, that they had with the British Army? Um, well, their heart's not in it. You know, it's not their war. So that's a huge factor. They also have different theories on combat and maneuvering uh, as compared to the British. So there's there's complaints by British officers about the slow, methodical approach of the Hessians to maneuver. But, you know, that's the way they were trained. It's, you know, it's hard to kind of blame them for that. They do have some successes. Um, their probably most notable success is the assault on Fort Washington during the New York campaign in 1776. But there are several instances where they fail. I mean, obviously, they're the ones that get surprised and, and mostly captured at the Battle of Trenton. Um, that was a Hessian force that, that Washington attacked at in those early morning hours. Another glaring failure by them is their assault on Fort Mercer during the Philadelphia campaign um, in late October of 1777. They're bloodily repulsed 
um, in that assault um, at, at, at the attack on Fort Mercer. But there's also complaints about them in other battles. There's, there's British complaints about them um, at, at Brandywine is not uh, about not moving fast enough to support the British attack on the flank and not actually getting into the fight. So, yeah, and then, and they're hard. I mean, if you read some of the Hessian accounts, there are often Hessian officers complaining about the British efforts. There's officers saying that the British don't do enough to follow up their victories and that their heart's not, and that they're, they're coming around saying the British heart, hearts aren't in the war and they don't want to win. So it's, it's very interesting to read the Hessian accounts complaining about Howe's decision-making and, and that they would do it a different way and things like that. But ultimately, they, they're here till the end of the war. They're going to be surrendered just like the British Army is at Yorktown. And, and despite popular belief, the vast majority of them will return to Europe. Yes, it's true. Some do settle here and choose not to go back. But the vast majority will return to Europe when the war is over. And, Michael, with a few minutes we have left, now we have General Washington going toe-to-toe with General Henry Clinton. Compare that with what Washington had to went up against General Howe. All right. Well, Washington's army is different at that point because the the American army goes through a transformation in that winter at Valley Forge. They're going to be formally trained, better organized, more buy-in to uh, 18th century tactical doctrine. And so the army that left Valley Forge in many ways is a professional army. And when they do catch up with Henry Clinton um, at Monmouth in June of 78, um, while they do basically fight to a standstill, it proved that the American army was now a formidable body. They were not driven away by Clinton, even though there was a point in the battle where it looked bad for the Americans. But their professionalism at that point came through. They regrouped and they held the, the uh, British to a stalemate there. So they're a different force at that point. Now, that's really the only major battle Washington will have against Clinton, because after that, the award largely shifts to the southern colonies, and Washington is not a part of that until Yorktown. So he will not really face Clinton again in battle after Monmouth. Now, Michael, I'm going to go out on thin ice here. If you don't want to answer this, I understand. In your opinion, who is the best Continental Army general? Well, I'm a fan of Daniel Morgan just because of the tactics he used um, and some of the battles he involved in, like Saratoga and Cal Pens and a couple others. So I'm a big fan of Daniel Morgan. I'm also a fan of Nathaniel Green, probably Washington's best subordinate, and one of the reasons that he is sent south to command the Southern Army after the American loss at Camden. Um, Washington puts a lot of trust in Green, rightfully so. So either Morgan or Green would be my picks. And and uh, listeners, both of those men are, are well worth your time of reading and, and, and seeing what they is. So, Michael, again, as we close, we want to thank you. Share with our listeners, please, where they might be able to purchase either Germantown and Brandywine. And again, I am anxiously waiting for your, your new book to be published. Well, I appreciate that. I'm still working on the new book, though. But um, my current book is there on Amazon. Oh, sorry. sorry. Mike, I've heard that now for a while. <laughs> I know, but it's, you know, I have a day I job. Know. <laughs> um, but anyway, my current books are on Amazon. Barnes & Noble's got them. Or you can get them directly from my publisher, uh, Savas Beatty, which is out of California. But they're they're readily available. And, and listeners, I, I can't recommend both of Michael's books highly enough to you. And we look forward to his new book coming out. And yes, Michael does have a day job. He is a full-time teacher in the public system. So he's doing all this 
research and historical documentation in his spare time along with his his wife and, and his son. So, Michael, we want to thank you for sharing again with us about Germantown and a little bit of the background and happened after that. And we want to just encourage you to continue to write. Information is just phenomenal. I'm, I'm very appreciative that I finally came across your Brandywine book several years ago and, and the time that we're able to spend together at different organizations and seeing your book. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Arch. I appreciate that. Well, we appreciate all that you do. So, listeners, again, Brandywine by Michael Harris, Germantown by Michael Harris, and look forward to his, his new, new book coming out sometime, hopefully, fairly soon. Uh, with the research he's doing. So again, we want to thank thank Michael Harris for coming and sharing these two quotes. This is 1180 AM WFIL, Working for Your Liberty. <laughs>